<clears throat> I'm Bob and I'm alcoholic. Some of those jokes were so old that you'd heard them so many times. There were people laughing before the punchline. That's, that's called uh, premature ejaculation. <clears throat> I am my favorite comic and my favorite audience. Um, I'll tell you, oh, this is, I shouldn't even tell you this. Yeah, what the hell. This I think about the, I wish this wasn't recorded, because there's a whole bunch of stuff I could talk about. Um, many, many years ago, I was uh, listening to a fifth step. It was going, at the beginning, it started going, all right? And then we get to the last part, you know, the, the sex inventory and, and I, you know, the, I'm instructed by the big book not to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We don't, we don't have a judgment. We don't have an opinion. We just, we just listen. We just, if, if you're doing something that's hurting yourself, we'll help you to stop hurting yourself. That basically, that's all we do. It's not a moral thing. But even though I'm instructed not to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct, about partway through this, I had to stop and I had to say something. I said, listen. You know, you have got to stop masturbating. And he says, he looks up and he goes, how come? Well, because I'm trying to listen to your fifth step, for God's sakes. <laughs> take, take that off the recording. <laughs> oh. If Clancy were to hear, yeah, if Clancy heard that he'd he'd bludgeon me with a big book. Um, uh, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, if you try imperfectly to do this stuff in your life, there's a lot of things that happen to us or for through us or. Uh, it could be referred to as promises. There's a lot of promises in the big book. You know, every, everybody reads the, most groups around the world read the ninth step promises. And I get it because they're, they're flowery, you know, new freedom and new happiness. Not really, you could, it's the kind of stuff you could put on a Hallmark card in a recovery bookstore. But some of the other promises are, are just, just as good. And then there's unwritten promises that, just come about as a result of the cause and effect. And a lot of the things that are laid out in our book, they're, they, they just, they're laid out in three parts. They describe an identifiable problem when as you're reading it, you can go, yeah. It starts in the beginning. Not drinking, restless, irritable, discontent, yeah. You know, you get on and on, prone to misery, and yeah. And then it gives you uh, actions to take. And then it gives you what is referred to often as the promises, the results. It, the, it's, the, it's the cause and effect of the actions. And one of the parts that, uh, and there's no promise in the book that states this, I think, in its totality, but in the beginning of... Uh, Chapter six <clears throat> into action when it's it's starting to break.
bring us to the actions in the fifth step, uh, it says something pretty interesting. It says, more than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but he knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. This inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension. I had a friend back in the late 70s, early 80s, used to say something frequently in meetings. He used to say the difference between a, an alcoholic and a your average sociopathic bum bushwhacker is that the alcoholic has a conscience. And it's part of the reason we, uh, it, it part, it's part of one of the elements that fuels the drinking and the need and the inability to stay comfortable sober because I'm tormented and haunted by my conscience. And I'm not a sociopath. There are sociopaths that, that come in, in and out of AA, and some of them stay for decades, but they seem to have that disconnect, and I don't have that. And I was talking to someone before <clears throat> this morning, before this meeting started, and uh, he said something to me that I've said to myself, and I've had um, dozens of sponsees when they're new say to me, and I said it. I don't know who I am. I've tried to be so many things to so many people driven by a fear of what you think of me that I've lost who I am and I don't know. And, and you see evidence of this in early sobriety uh, frequently, especially if you, if you ever watch two single people that are newly sober starting to date in, in early sobriety, oh my God, it's so funny. Because it, they don't know who they are. And they'll, they'll have a conversation. The guy will say to the girl, well, would you go out to dinner? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, where would you like to go? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Well, what do you like to eat? Uh, I don't know. What do you like to eat? We've tried to be so many things to so many people, we've lost ourselves. And, you know, and it takes a while in sobriety, I think for some of us to to wake up to who we are. I mean, I found I discovered stuff in sobriety that I really liked that I would have never imagined because I have that contempt prior to investigation thing it talks about in one of the appendixes. So you can present me with things and self-centered fear will immediately go. No, I don't like that. Well, you never tried. Yeah, but I know I like. I just know. I just know crap. You know, <laughs> like. Uh, and, and yet, in sobriety, as I started to find who I was and trust God more, I started to take some things that to most people wouldn't be risks. But if you're driven by a hundred forms of fear, they're, they're risky. 
I remember my first, um, I don't know, eight years, eight, ten years maybe, eight or nine years, I guess, of sobriety. I had a lot of friends in AA that, that snow skied. And they're always trying to get me to go. And I just keep telling them, ah, I don't really like that. Well, I'd never been. What's really going on, the truth is, I'm afraid of trying it and looking stupid. I'm afraid of falling down. I'm afraid of hurting myself. I'm afraid of people laughing at me on the on the slopes. Oh, my God. It was just... I, I, so I, I'm one of those kind of guys that you can't reject me because I'll reject me first. So I don't go. And I was about nine, nine years sober. And uh, I finally, this guy, he was a, had been a ski instructor. He was a pretty good skier. And he got me to go up to Brian Head. And uh, he got me on these skis. And God, it's so awkward. I feel like a newborn deer, you know, trying to walk in these boots. And oh, my God, it was horrible. And he takes me up to this top of this like it must have been a three mile high mountain that's straight down was the they called it the bunny hill but i don't think it was the bunny hill <laughs> like, right and oh and, and here's the hard part we're on the ski lift you know that you sit on that thing your skis dangling and holding on and <laughs> you you're supposed to get off when you get to the top well I don't know how to stand up very well at skis. So I, the minute I, my skis hit the ground, I fall. Now there's people coming in, cussing me from behind me off the next lift thing. And, and I just, I just got up. I said, I want to go back to the lodge. This is horrible. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to show you what to do. You'll love this. You'll love this. And he was telling me, so you got to make a wedge. It's like a pizza, piece of pizza, right? You got to make the wedge. and got to go down. And I, and I, uh, and I get, I go about 10 feet and I fall. I get up, I go about 10 feet and I fall. I go about 10. And all, I finally get down to the bottom of the mountain. And I said, okay, I've tried it. I don't like it. This is not for me. And he says, he says, listen, you're close to getting it. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I, I'll have broken bones before the day's over. And he says, here, I watched you. Here's what you're doing. He said, as you start to go down the hill, you're, you get afraid. Yeah? And when you get afraid, you lean back because you're afraid of falling down the hill. It's an instinct. He said, the minute you lean back, you fall. He said, here's what I, you need to do. You need to lean into the fall as if you're going to try to fall downhill. Lean forward. And he said, you'll, you'll stabilize. And I thought, that's crazy. He's asking me to do something that's com completely contrary to my emotional reaction. And maybe if you got a good sponsor, he's asking you to do things like that too. In the beginning of, of chapter 5, in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, it talks about contrary action. It says all the, thing, all the steps, everything we do in AA runs contrary <laughs> to our desires, to what we feel. And uh, it's funny how, as you start to develop this atrophied, unused trust muscle and start trusting God, you start leaning 
into your fears. You know, and you start being willing to walk through them. And I, uh, over the years, I've, I've faced a, I had to face a lot of stuff. And, and I think it's, it's uh, the more fear I walk through, the more I trust God. It's, a, it's like that, un, it's a, like an unused muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. And this is essential uh, to my recovery because I have to develop this trust with God. And if I don't, when the wheels come off of my life and I'm terrified and drinking or suicide is a possibility, if I don't have something I can trust in in the middle of the storm of emotions, I got nothing. Theory and belief and faith is not enough in those times. I have to have an experience with trusting God and knowing, not because you say, but knowing from my own personal experience, he's got me. He's always had me and he always will. The covenant is, is unbreakable. I can break it, but it's unbreakable on his end. Uh, so this, uh, this walking through the fears and discovering who you are uh, starts, st something started happening in me. As I discovered who I was, I started to live who I was and be who I was. And one of the great fears I had was what you'd think of me. And, and so I, it took me, it took me a while with my sponsor in early sobriety before I could start being transparent with him. You know, I can be transparent about the good stuff, but when I've just done something, um, I don't feel very good about. And I've always, here's a funny thing I, I have. If I do something that I judge myself harshly for or feel ashamed of, I imagine that everyone that would find out what I did would feel the same way. I've always imagined that if you knew about me, what I know about me, you'd feel about me the way I feel about me. And so that kept me closed off for a while. But you know what happens. I mean, you get, you get to these points where you, uh, I love that paragraph in Chapter 5 where it uh, talks about um, we made decisions based on self, which later placed us in that position to be hurt. And you, you do things because, you know, trouble always starts out looking like fun. And you make those stupid, self-gratifying, self-grandizing, self-defensive uh, actions, and, and you get you're in trouble. You get trouble here, and I don't want you to know because I judge myself harshly. I am not a sociopath. I can do a lot of crazy, horrible things, but I have, my conscience just beats me up and. It drives me to imagine that if you knew about me what I know about me, you'd feel about me the way I feel about me, and that's bad. So you have, what happens is you get yourself backed into a corner, and it, it gets that place where you're in such emotional distress and pain that, man, you've got to do something. It's a, there's a desperation. Uh, and you think the desperation of getting sober is bad? The desperation in sobriety from actions done on self-will can even be worse. You know, it's it's it, one of the things it says in here is it's so interesting. Um, 
It says the inconsistency. Now he's talking about things we do on our sprees. The inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Now, most people think that's just drinking. I have had self-gratification, self-will, self-defensive sprees, self-will run riot sprees in my sobriety. And, and then it says the coming to his senses. You, you ever just been on a, just like on a, just on a tie, on a tear, and all of a sudden you come to your senses and go, what? Oh my God, what did I do? What? told my boss I was going to rip his face off. What am I doing here? You know, I, I, I was eight years sober before I hit a bottom with, with uh, violence and anger. And it was, it was horrible. I could have went to prison. And it, I love this line, coming to his senses. And I remember after banging this guy's head against the hood of his car and, and snapping out of it. It was like, and the guy, he was possibly one of us. And he, he sort of was looking for help, I think, but he'd robbed me, right? And when, he, when we caught him, he said, well, I knew you were an AA. I, I thought you'd understand. That's what snapped me. I just started banging his head against the, I had my, I had my employees had him spread-eagled over the coat of his car. And, and, my, and I finally came to my senses. It was like, because I, and I went back later through the book, through working with others to see if there's a part in there where it says, a bludgeoning a new guy might be useful. It doesn't say that in there. I mean, it's not, I mean, and I felt, I felt so ashamed of myself. And sometimes uh, pain and shame and remorse is the essence of the sixth step. How do you come, become entirely ready? And I, uh, I tell you, I thought I, I, that was 30, that was over 35 years ago, that last incident. I've not had one since. And I don't know if that's the kind of bottom you have to have for all your defects, but I had it with that one. And until you get that place, you can't stand yourself. And I've never, I've never gone back into those actions since then. Never, not even close. Um, so it, these things he vaguely remembers. It's like a whiteout. You know, you're sober, but you just, you're not even, like, who's in charge when you're in the middle of rage? Who's in charge in, in the middle of lust? You, you told your sponsor, I, she's a new girl. I'm not going to go with her. Next thing you know, I, I have a sponsee. He said, he says, I met this new girl at a meeting, and she's a witch. I said, what do you mean she's a witch? Well, I was giving her a ride home. She put her hand on my thigh and she turned me into a hotel. I mean, <laughs> into a motel. I mean, just. <laughs> and he was, he was aghast because he, he's not that kind of guy. But he didn't understand. Uh... See, I think sometimes as you start to wake up, to who you are and all of it. I mean all of it. Your weaknesses, your uh, propensity maybe to anger, lust. You, you start learning how to, I started to learn how to protect Bob from Bob. Because there's only one person on the planet 
that can destroy you, and it's you. And if you don't learn how to protect you from you, you're going to have troubles here. That's why the surrender principle is, is, is sort of the bedrock of Alcoholics Anonymous, because i got to get my life out of the hands of the idiot and start living by spiritual principles and accountability. And when you start finding out who you are, you start developing something that most alcoholics don't know what it, they don't even know we don't even know what it is and that's integrity. Integrity comes from a Latin integral. It's the same means one. When you have integrity, you have one mind. You're one person. You're not the person that says this and does that. You're the person who does what they say they're going to do that 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 professes to live by certain spiritual principles and then makes whatever effort effort is necessary to be that. You, you got to be the guy you need to be. And it's not the guy somebody else wants you to be. It's the guy you know in here you need to be. And that's when integrity is your one person. See, I, I prior to getting sober, I was, I, I don't even know who I am. I'm such a flake. Because if you came to me and said, I, you know, I need some help. I'm, I'm moving this weekend. Would you, could you help me? Well, I want to look like a good guy. Yes, I would. And then come Saturday when I'm supposed to meet you, something else just came up. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I and I have a I have an excuse factory in my head that can produce some excuses that oh my god that, that so you won't be mad at me. Because I I want the bragging rights of being a kind, good, helping guy without doing nothing, right? So uh, there's no integrity in that because I'm, I'm like several different people and I got to be one person. And finding out who you are here is, is it, it can be, uh, for me, parts of it were a, a little frightening, but then it resolves itself into comfort. Uh, the frightening part is that I'm afraid that I'm going to discover I'm someone I can't stand and I'll have to kill myself. And to my amazement, it's the opposite that happens. What I discover is I'm someone who is not perfect, but I'm someone who I kind of like. Uh, I'm so, I would rather, with, with all my defects and all my problems throughout the years, I would rather have those than yours. Not that there's anything wrong with you, but I've come. I can navigate my own self-centeredness. It, it takes it, it takes years to learn how to do that in sobriety. To, uh, to start to be familiar, and and I, uh, it, it's like you have to become. You got to know your enemy. You got to know the chatter. You got to know what's what's going on here, or because if you don't. It, it will it just ambushes you your head can ambush you if you don't understand that this is this is the selfish chatter of an ego that wants to control you and I uh, Wilson says something in the 12 steps and 12 traditions it's kind of funny but my god does it seem to be true in my life he says that in, towards the end I think it's in step 12 he says that we've been talking a lot about problems and we you know there's there's a lot of talk about that's when I I don't call my sometimes I'll call my sponsor about the good stuff 
but it's, I call my sponsor. If it's a sense of urgency, it's because I got a problem. And he says, we talk a lot about problems. And then he says, why? And I think this is funny. He says, well, it's because we're problem people. I have a friend who considers himself a golf guy because he's into golf. Golf's his center of his life. Problems are the center of mind. I got a mind that is like a problem-seeking missile. You know, it's just, it's it's constantly doing threat assessments. It's just, it doesn't see good. It just, it'll, it'll scan over good to find bad. And if you don't think you're like that, sit for 20 minutes and ponder your future and see if you spiral up or down, <laughs> right? <laughs> because the mind, the ego is only concerned with things that it can control or defend itself against. And so I, I, I have a, I'm a defensive kind of guy. And I'll tell you, come, waking up, a part of this awakening, and this is true regardless of whether you're an agnostic, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, uh, a Native American, whatever, doesn't matter. We all have the same experience. A part of this awakening is to wake, and wake up to your enemy. I, it was put to me very well in early sobriety. I uh, was at a meeting at the old Wano Club. And uh, after the meeting, a guy named Joe came up to me and he said, uh, I shared some little thing in the meeting. I don't even know what it was. And he came up to me and he said, kid, you need to take step three. And I said to Joe, I said, Joe, I... I can't take step three. And he says, why not? I said, because I don't believe in God. He said, you don't have to believe in God to take step three. I said, Joe, the steps are right there on the wall. I said, Joe, step two, came to believe, haven't done that. Step three, God, as we understand, don't have that. Don't, I can't take step three. He says, listen, kid, I'll tell you once again, you don't have to believe in God to take the third step. He said, I'll tell you what. You turn your will and your life over to this chair, and he points to a chair in the Alano Club. He says, I promise you an instantaneous transformational miracle. I thought, all right, Joe, I turn my will and life over to the chair. And Joe gets this big grin on his face and says, well, the miracle is your life's no longer in the hands of an idiot. <laughs> and I got it. I mean, I, I, was away, I, had, I was around AA just enough that I got that was the truth. Because if, if I could have stepped back from myself the last several years and even well into my sobriety through some of the self-will binges and I watched me as maybe my friends, family, uh, neighbors had watched me, could anyone watching Bob come to any conclusion that whoever's making decisions for him must be out to kill him? And yet it never, when you have the justifying, rationalizing, defending, and explaining mind that chatters all the time and makes nonsense seem sensible, when you have that kind of mind, it never looks that way to me. Never. I can explain anything. I can explain anything. And so to know your enemy here is a big deal. And, and that's what a big piece of Alcoholics Anonymous is to diligently identify the symptoms of the, of the ego, of this a bondage of self. Because we're supposed to, you know, during, during the day, step 10, watch. Watch for evidence. Watch for evidence that the ego is coming back again for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, or fear. 
And at night, I, I look to see because if I'm the thing about I've I've watched a lot of uh, really good men and women, but I've seen I'm, I've seem to see more men die of this disease or, or drink again after years. And one of the symptoms of that happens right before they drink is they they get so full of themselves that you can't tell them anything. They're defended. You can't even talk to them. You try, and they just they just have that wall up, that self righteous. Don't they get angry? They feel threatened if you try to if you try to question them about what they're doing and what they're. If you even try to point out to them what seems to everybody around them obvious, they get angry and they get defensive. Because with the ego comes certain things. Entitlement. Bad. That's a bad deal, entitlement. Um, easily offended. You, you catch me being offended, you'll catch me with a whole bunch of ego going on. Um, opinions, resentments, fears, worry. I, I have... I have in sobriety, my early days of sobriety, before I really worked the steps, and even after working the steps, I still get little tiny things. It's just dialed down a lot. It's not like it was when I was new. But when I was new, my I would get full of anxiety to the point where I'm losing it here. I feel like I'm having a nervous breakdown. And I thank God I had a good sponsor to talk me off the ledge. He was so good with this because and I and I'm pretty good with the guys I sponsor because I would go to him and I'm just nuts and he'd always bring me back to where you are and where God is I'd be afraid of all this stuff that's going to happen and just this is going to happen and that's going to happen and he'd say but right this second is everything all right I go, yeah, yeah, right this second but Mike tell you by the end of the month I'm not going to be able to pay my rent and I'm like no, no, I know, I know, I know, I know I know, but, but but right this second, right this moment, is everything all right? And he would keep saying that until eventually he would wear me down and get me to concede that, yes, right this moment, everything's all right. And he'd go, good, that's good. When it's no longer okay right now, you and I are going to have something to work with here. But let's stop trying to clear up the wreckage of your future and let's stop trying to solve problems that haven't occurred yet and what he's, what's he doing? He's bringing me back to the great reality. You know, Wilson says something uh, that I didn't understand. He, he says that he felt like he'd been rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. And I, I went to a guy, there was a guy I sponsored who taught, was a science teacher, because I meant fourth dimension, sounded like something out of a, out of a, Robert Heinlein book or something, Asimov, or science fiction-y kind of, fourth dimension. And I went to this guy and I asked him, what's, so what's that? And he said, well, there's, there's, he said, now at one time we only thought, people thought there was three dimensions. There was uh, height, width, and depth. And then he said, uh, physicists and scientists started realizing there's more than three, three dimensions. And now that he said, he told me this, I don't, I don't know what it is today. This was 40 years ago, I suppose. He said, uh, 40 years ago, he told me, he said, now they think there's 10 or more dimensions. 
So I said, but what's the fourth dimension? He said, well, Einstein believed it was time. In other words, this book is so many inches high, so many inches wide, and so many inches deep. At this moment, a moment from now, the dimensions can change because time is fluid like everything else in the universe. So very interesting, but I got back to the important stuff. So that's nice, but what's that to do with me? Because I'm a me kind of concerned guy. And, <laughs> and he, said, he said, well, maybe you're disconnected from time in your life. And I've thought about that over the years. And the, here's, here's a sad truth. I don't live in the moment, in the present much. Uh, I live a lot in the past, reminiscing and just kind of going over things that I'd done and happened to me, etc. and resentments. All my resentments are stuff in the past. Or I'm in the future getting afraid about things that might happen or could happen. But the right now, the fourth dimension, I'm not here much. I, I think... I mean, because of AA and I work with a lot of newcomers and stuff that brings me out of myself and into the present intermittently, I think I do like drive-bys in the present, you know, just and then I'm back to my head again. Um, but I probably, I probably have been in, if the fourth dimension is the moment, the present, I probably experienced more of that as a result of the actions of Alcoholics Anonymous than, than I ever did except possibly in the early days of drinking. I'm, I'm amazed over the years how Alcoholics Anonymous produces slowly the most sought-after effect produced quickly by alcohol. Because I remember this, this experience, and maybe you've had it, where you walk, you walk into a bar and you're so stuck up in your head that you don't, you're, not even, you're not even there. I mean, you're there, but you're not really there. It's like looking at, out from like a deep, caverns inside of me and all the and the stupid people and they get the, the jukeboxes playing just I don't even like that kind of music and about five drinks I start thinking man I kind of like that song do you hear the bass line in that that's amazing what's happening is I'm coming into the moment I'm starting to see the reality around me I said the people start to seem interested where I just fearfully judged them from up in here, and now I'm starting to become present. And then what happened to me is what happens to all chronic alcoholics in this progressive nature, this sickness. As time goes on, the magical effect of freeing me and allowing me to be present seems to diminish. And the, the end of my drinking was very sad and very pathetic. I drank in depression and loneliness it seemed to do something at one time. It, I love the term in the 12 by 12. It says where alcohol, Bacchus allowed us to act extemporaneously, which means I could come out here and play. I could be here right now with you. But towards the end of my drinking, it pushed me more inside myself. It, it, there, the, I was more lonely when I was drunk. And how does that happen when, when at one time... Alcohol set me free. At one time, it, it allowed me to be right here. I, I can I can remember, um, I remember junior junior high school. 
when alcohol was so magical, the effect produced by it. And I I didn't really know it yet. I mean, I was experiencing it because I hadn't been drinking very long. But I go to a dance and I go to this and I had I had this uh, someone in my neighborhood teach me a couple dance things so I could dance because I didn't know how to dance. And I went to this dance with on a mission because there was a girl in my class that I was obsessed with. I mean, oh my God, I, I was, here's so bad. It was so bad when I was in a class with her, I couldn't even look on the side of the room that she was in because she'd make me crazy. I just, and I'm going to ask her to dance. I'm going to the dance to, on this mission. I, I already know what colleges our kids are going to go to. I mean, it's like, I'm crazy. I, I, I build castles in the air and then go on a mission to find someone to decorate them. You know, it's, right? <laughs> so I go to this dance and I'm going to ask her to dance. And I have this fantasy about, oh, we're going to fall in love and I'm going to probably have had sex. And it wouldn't be for the first time, but it would be the first time with a person. Um, and um, <laughs> and I go to the dance and she's, she's, I'm standing up against the wall of the gymnasium and she's out on the floor dancing with one of her girlfriends. And I'm trying to psych myself up to walk through that fear. And I, I can't, it's some, I, I'm stuck. I am stuck. And I, I, I'm fighting every song, every song I just battle within myself. Okay, I'm going to ask her. Next song, next song, next song, next song. The next song comes. And I just, it's the same. Finally, after, I don't know how many songs, but after a while, I just felt like such a pathetic loser. And I just, I shuffled out of that dance and out in the parking lot. I ran into a couple of my buddies who had a, Fifth of 151 rum. I love 151 rum. I'd get you downtown now. That's good. I like that stuff. Because you know how I like that. I like stuff like that because instant gratification is not quick enough for me. I like, boom. I like, and 151 was right now. And I go out there and I have, they have, they have some Coca-Cola. I make a, one of those little plastic cups, get a couple of 151 and rum and Cokes in me. And it changed the world. I floated back into that dance under the power of 151 rum. I walked right up to that girl. The girl I couldn't even hardly even look at. She made me so crazy. And I just started talking to her. And I'm saying all the right stuff. And I don't know where it's coming from. It's like I'm channeling someone very cool and very funny. And, and I'm making her laugh. And she wants to dance with me. And we're dancing. We ended up in sort of seeing each other for a period of time. But in the middle of that, I, I was experiencing the power of alcohol. And we fought, suddenly realized that alcohol was doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? They're amazing promises. And I, I, what a, what an amazing thing alcohol was when alcohol was what alcohol was. And then what a sad and pathetic thing the effect produced by alcohol became in the progression of the disease. I, I don't, I've never met an alcoholic yet that if he could have maintained 
the effect produced by alcohol that he received when he was started to drink, he would have never got sober. I, w I was, um, was in a treatment center, uh, the last, last treatment center I was in, I was in, they kept me a long time because I was really sick. Uh, my detox was twice as long as, as anybody else in there because I was, I mean, I'm the kind of drunk, I get, not, not all alcoholics get physically addicted to alcohol, but I get extremely physically addicted to the point where I, I can have, I have seizures, I just, it's bad. I, I drink and I don't eat when I drink for days. Because I, I can't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to eat up my drinking money. I, and I'm living on the street, so I get, you give me a choice, uh, Richard's Wild Irish Rose or McDonald's. McDonald's is going to lose that choice every single time because I need the medicine more than that with a desperation. So I got, I got sores that don't heal. My gums bleed. I shake uncontrollably. They finally got me physically stabilized. And I got a counselor named Judy. And I was in there long enough that, that I had to sign release papers for Judy to get all my files from all the other treatment centers and some of the therapists I went to. So over the course of about six weeks, seven weeks that I was in there, Judy ended up, and we had sessions a lot. And I probably talked to her every day. Judy knew more about me than I knew about me. And she really, she had to, she had the deal. And I get out of there, I got a sponsor and I get out of there and I'm going to a lot of meetings. I'm going to probably two to three meetings a day. I think, well, I think Sunday I went to four or five usually. And I'm going to all these meetings because, you know, because I'm a lot better. I feel a lot better when I'm with you than I do when I'm with me. So I went to a lot of meetings and uh, about three months in, I guess, um, uh, I ran into Judy at my what became my first home group. And she she was a member of AA. She didn't go a lot, but she would go. Because counselors don't do a lot of AA, it seemed like. But she, she went occasionally. She comes to my home group, and she comes up to me at the meeting, and she says to me, she asked me this question that baffled me. She said, Bob, what happened to you? I, I don't know what she means. I said, what do you mean, Judy? What do you mean? She said, well, every time I'm leaving the, the treatment center, you seem to be one of the guys bringing the meetings in there. I said, oh, yeah, I do that a couple times a week. She said, I hear you got Dick Tucson as a sponsor. I said, I do. I call him every day. She said, I heard that you just became the secretary of, a, of the rush hour group at the Alano Club. I said, you know, I did. I'm not supposed to. You're supposed to have six months, but they voted me in anyway. She said, I heard you contacted the courts and offered to go do the two years. I said, I did, and I don't have to do the two years. It's so amazing. I, I said, I hear you contacted your parents and you're trying to make amends. And I, I got sad when she said that. I said, yeah, I, I, I'm doing the actions my sponsor wants me to do, but it's not going that well. It took my parents a long time to warm up to me again, to start to even want to be, see me. But I, I was taking the actions she said, I, I heard you praying. I was embarrassed. I said, yeah, well, yeah, I know. But I, I don't, I'm not sure yet I believe in God, but I'm, I'm taking the action. And, and then she says, what happened to you? Because in all the years you were around treatment centers and you were in and out of AA, you never were willing to do all that stuff. 
And she said, she posed that question and it rocked me because I thought, my God, what happened to me? Because I functioned under a delusion that a lot of us, you know, that if you've been around AA and you're not quite ready yet and you, you tell yourself, you know, one of these days I'm going to come back into AA and I'm going to really do it. And it'll probably have to happen after I hit such a horrific bottom that the pain of it and the shame and the guilt's going to catapult me into the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was my delusion. When the truth was, my last drunk was not my worst by, by any means. I had some that were just nightmares. But it was the one. And I don't know what had happened to me. When I couldn't answer Judy's question. And then, you know, people, when you come off the streets, people in AA, if they, if they suspect you're serious, my God, the, the help just pours in. People in AA gave me rides to meetings. They would give me cigarettes. They, they, they'd take me to a noon meeting at a restaurant, and they'd sometimes people, guys would buy me lunch because I don't have any money. And they were very, very kind to me, a kindness that I'm still trying to repay. And uh, one guy gave me, not, he gave, he used to give me, a couple guys were giving me clothes because I didn't have nothing. I had the clothes out of the, the, the leftover bag from the treatment center, right? I remember one of my earlier outfits was, Checked pants, checked shirt, and the checks didn't match. I mean, I didn't know that's a fashion statement in L.A. later. Um, <laughs> and uh, a guy gave me not only a whole bunch of really nice clothes, but he gave me a box of books. Uh, not recovery books, not spiritual books. These are like mysteries, science fiction, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm reading after this this interaction with Judy, I'm reading one of those books. And there's a part of this book, it's not the main, it's not the storyline, it's a little offshoot of the storyline, where there, these scientists are doing experiments on the human brain. And they discovered that in the human brain, there's a part that allows you to get high. They, it had a Latin name, but they ca called it the pleasure center of the brain. And it's where you, it allows you to get high from alcohol and drugs. So what they did is to study this, they got these laboratory rats and they put two tiny wire filaments into the pleasure center of the rat's brain. And then they'd pass a, a mild electric stimulus through those wires and that rat would get really loaded. Matter of fact, it, it just, it just it never experienced anything that felt that good. So they hooked up the juice to a pedal in the rat's cage and right away the rat would learn he could hit that pedal and get high. So the rat just lays on the pedal. He don't stop to eat. He don't stop to drink water, to, to have sleep. He doesn't, you can parade lady rats in front of him. He said, not now, baby, I'm too busy partying. You know, he'd be hitting that pedal. And he hit the pedal until he died. Well, the sci that shocked the scientists because they're not in the business of killing rats. And he'd usually die from a combination of, of dehydration and exhaustion. His heart would seize up. So what they did is they put these monitors on the rats that would allow them to know when the rat was getting in a danger zone so they could turn the juice off. So some, one of those poor rats is partying like hell, hitting that, hitting that pedal, hitting that pedal, hitting, and all of a sudden they get in the danger zone. The scientists shut the juice, turn that juice off. Now that poor rat hits that pedal and nothing happens, and again, and again, and again, and again, and nothing happens until he finally realizes something he doesn't want to know that once and for all 
this party's over. And instead of being able to go back to being a rat, he would curl up in a ball and lay on the floor of the cage to die. Because without the juice, what the hell's the point of any of it? I read that and I started choking up, man. I started to, because I thought, oh my God, that's, that's what happens to me. I didn't get thrown into Alcoholics Anonymous with a willingness and a desperation because of the consequences of my drinking and the consequences were severe. If I could have still got high, if I could have made that juice still work, I'd have never got sober. I, re I remember the moments, and uh, many of them in the last year I drank, were just the desolation of chasing something you can't catch, chasing the ghosts of the party's past. And I don't know, I, it, it was that that broke me, not the consequences. And I, uh, I, I'll tell you what I, I believe with my, from my experience is that Alcoholics Anonymous is not designed to get you to quit drinking. Want to quit drinking? Punch a cop. You'll quit for a while. Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to do one thing, and I think one thing only, and that's to turn the juice back on. It's to slowly duplicate a feeling of freedom and rightness that I'd once found in the bottle. But AA has good news and bad news. The good news is that it works like that. The good news that everything that's wrong with you that drives you to do self-destructive things and drink again, Alcoholics Anonymous has a treatment for that. That's the good news. The bad news is that our process doesn't work as fast as five shots of tequila. But if you're lucky, as I was, I had nowhere to go. One of my favorite lines in the book <clears throat> describes me. And it's talking about before you ever come to believe in anything. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in AA. I don't even, not sure I even trust my sponsor. I don't believe in nothing. But it says, you'll come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of your life, Bob, as you have been living it. My God, I believe that. You, if you've been trying to, to control and enjoy your drinking and failing every single time, and you've been trying to control and enjoy your abstinence and you're failing every single time, that you ain't right drunk and you ain't right sober, you know what hopelessness and futility feels like. And then it says at that point, there's, it says at that point, if you come to believe that, it says then there's nothing left. I think one of the great things that happens to guys like me is I run out of game. I, you know, I run out of plans, my little plans and designs. I love that. It, 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 makes, it, it makes me sound so childish and petty in the book when it says, our little plans and designs. You know, Jesus, I don't have little, I have big deals. Uh, my little plans and designs. And uh, so there's nothing left. You've exhausted it all. There's no more game. There's no more hope of getting her back. There's no more getting a good job. You've had good jobs and that didn't do it either. There's no more new medication because you tried it all. There's no more new therapeutic movement because you've done it all. There's nothing left. No human power. Nothing left except to pick up this simple kit 
of spiritual tools, of spiritual actions that the people in AA from 1971 to 1978 were putting in front of me, laying, as the book says, laying at my feet, and I'm jumping over it because I'm smarter than you, and I know what I need. Hey, this is me. I know what I need. And I'm dying. And I'm dying. And I'm getting worse and worse. And in 1978, I tried to kill myself. How many people in here have either attempted suicide or at least, for God's sakes, wanted to and felt like it? How many people did it sober? Well, that's it. Makes that line in chapter 11 come true. Bob, you're not happy about your sobriety, are you? <laughs> right. Well, actually, I'm grateful and happy, but I'm going to kill myself. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so what, what we have here, in my experience, what I found here is I found a treatment that works intermittently for the thing that drove the engine, the thing that drove the train. And it's, it's this is not, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is not help. Uh, uh, not a self-help program for me. It's a life and death program for me. Um, I I love AA. Uh, I love AA not only for what it's done within me. It's 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 done the unimaginable in me. And what is that? That I could actually be sober and it wouldn't feel like I'm doing time. That I could actually be sober and feel. Uh, long moments of, of freedom that I could actually that I could be sober and like me in my imperfections and still and, and just be glad I'm me and that the, the Bob I've come to know over the decades is not a Bob I have to kill it's a Bob I kind of like uh, in in the imperfections with all the defects Alcoholics Anonymous has, has been very, very good to me. But I, I, I believe that I have to guard my sobriety and guard my program of recovery because the this my head can move me out of here easily. If I, if I let it take charge again, it will move me out of my own recovery. And it'll do it by shiny objects, whether it's a girl or a car or a job or big money or a house or and I want to read I'm gonna think I'm gonna close with this and or maybe maybe I will maybe I don't know I never I don't know what I'm doing that's yeah so people ask me sometimes what are you gonna talk about God I wish I knew <laughs> most of the time I can't wait to hear what I'm gonna say I don't because I don't know I I mean, I, I've, I've got, I've, I know people in AA that write it out and have a little cards and they just refer notes on a book. I haven't even, I've only picked up the book and read out of it maybe twice. Uh, but one of the most uh, beautiful and dead on things Bill Wilson ever wrote was in the, the original 12th tradition. It's really very poignant to me and very touching and very true. He says, and this is after reading, 
reading the long form, which is very long. And he, he goes, I first time I ever heard somebody read the long form. I thought they were personally in a, interjecting the first two words in the 12th tradition. It's actually in the 12th tradition. And the first two words is, and finally, because <laughs> they're long, right? <laughs> and finally, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the principle of anonymity has an immense spiritual significance. It reminds us that we are to place principles before personalities, that we are actually to practice a genuine humility, this to the end, that our great blessings may never spoil us, that we shall forever live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all. There is so much in that tradition. Uh, this, this principle of anonymity is that I go from it, it, it's, it, it, I go from being a big shot to just one of the herd, just a servant here, just one of the guys. You know, another friend of mine says, another bozo on the bus, right? That, that it's only my ego that tries to distinguish me and rise me above everybody else. That my soul, my soul yearns for unity. That yearns to love. My ego clamors to be loved, but my soul yearns to love. And you know how you know that? Because love doesn't, receiving love is never quite enough. I, you know, I, you can't, I, people, if love could have changed me, my parents would have changed me. I had girlfriends that just, that sacrificed for me, did all, I mean, they, above and beyond what would, what you could understand, why would they do all that? because they love me, but I'm the black hole of love. You can't love me enough. But when you guys tricked me into helping others and sponsoring guys, as I started to care about you and started to love you, the deficiencies, the inadequacies, the vacancies inside of me that I always imagined would be filled if I had the right people loving me the right way, if I had the right material stuff, if I, if I, I thought I could fill those holes from, from acquisition. And the more, it's, it's like trying to fill the inside vacancies with outside stuff. It's, it just, it doesn't work. It not only doesn't work, it seems to make the thirst and the hole bigger. It stretches it out, makes it more empty. And yet, I've had moments, and I to this day I have them. I, I it's it's what I, it's really what I live for in Alcoholics Anonymous. Those moments where you're talking with some guy, and you're trying to help him, and you don't know if you can help him or not. It doesn't matter, but you care about him. How he's doing right now in his life and his sobriety is more important than you. And. Those are the moments where I feel the way I always imagined I'd feel if I had everything I wanted. So it comes from giving, not from receiving. And that's a and, and this this principle of anonymity, of joining the herd, of being one with, being small enough to fit in here. You know, there's there's no we don't, according to the 11th tradition, we never promote ourselves. We don't distinguish ourselves. Um, 
could just fit in here. And then this, this other principle of principles before personalities. I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I'm not quick sometimes with stuff, or I'm very selfish and I turn stuff, it'll make it all about me. So I thought for years, probably 20 years in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, we, I did tradition workshops with general service, all that stuff, and I thought what they meant with principles before personalities, that I was supposed to practice some principles that AA presents, you know, like acceptance and forgiveness and tolerance and all those things. And I'm supposed to put those before your annoying and somewhat difficult personalities. And I got to tell you what I've learned. And this is, this is my, this is so true for me. There's only one personality that I have to put these principles before. And that's mine. Because I am the seat, the source, and the center of my conflict, my opinions, and my judgments. I don't need to practice these principles to tolerate you. I need to practice these principles to tolerate me. Because when I don't tolerate you, I pay a price in here. I end up feeling about myself the way I'd feel about an opinionated, judgmental guy. It's unescapable. There's a lot of things. There, there's a lot of things in my life I don't do. It's not that self-gratification wouldn't want me to do them. I just don't do them because I get it. I'm awake. I know what the price is. You know, one of the things that, that, that hurts so many of us is we're delusional. We, we think we can get away with stuff and not pay a price. The price is always present. And it's, all, it's always there. So, and we do this so that the great, uh, our great blessings will, will never spoil us. Do you know, if you see people, how often, I got, I got three guys right now. I love these guys. And I've sponsored them for over a decade. And they're all making several million dollars a year. And they all got like movie star girlfriends and wives. And my one, my one guy just bought a, a several million dollar house. I mean, they got everything, everything you'd ever want. And as their material world grew, their spiritual world shrank. And they don't even know they're doing it. And what, because when you think about it, what would seduce a guy like me away from the thing that's changed my life? It's the fruits and what I reap in my own recovery. You know, when you think about it, you, I go to de a lot of detoxes. People in detox, oh my God, they got a horrible case of alcoholism. Ten years later, with a million dollars in the bank, they're kind of alcoholic. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know. oh, I mean, sort of, you know. I mean, yeah, don't admit, oh yeah, I'm alcoholic. How come you haven't been to a meeting in a while? Well, I'm busy. I seduced by the things that feed the ego and the things that feed the self. And Wilson, he's brilliant when he says, uh, we're actually to practice a genuine humility, this to the end that our great blessings may never spoil us, that we shall forever live in thankful contemplation to him who presides over us all. To know that my life is good and it's not my fault. 
Humility is something that's... Uh, do you know that the word humility and the word humor come from the same root word, humus meaning earth? And most of the people I know uh, that I think are humble, not perfect, but they have some, some innate humility is because they ha and they had this ability to laugh at themselves. I liked Wilson's description of humility. He said, it's an honest reckoning of who and what I am, coupled with a sincere desire to grow towards God's vision of who he wants me to be. And, and when, you're, when you're like that, you get the joke. And the joke is us. When you can start laughing at yourself, you'll never be without entertainment. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you are interested in other speaker tapes or CDs from AA or Al-Anon, please contact us at Sound Solutions, toll free, 1-877-893-893. 2777 or visit us on the web at soundsolutionsrecording.com we are also available to cover your recording and sound system needs thank you for allowing us to be of service and carrying the message